There's just something fantastic about German Expressionism, isn't there? Dark, complex, experimental, highly influential. It's a film movement that was very effective in the silent era and produced some of the most influential films ever made. Think Metropolis, The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, Nosferatu, or The Last Laugh. Audiences have been entertained in studying these films since their release in the 1920s and 30s. Between the stark contrast of light and shadow, the complex stories, and the stylized set design, there's a lot to like. Nosferatu debuted the vampire in film, and it has captured the fear and imaginations of audiences since its release. Today I want to talk to you about another great German Expressionist film, made by a person who some say directed one of the greatest and most influential films of all time. So if you're like me, and you enjoy film and the impact and emotions that it can convey, then grab a glass of your preferred liquid and join me for the next little while. For me, that's a nice warm mug of hot chocolate. So sit back, relax, and let's talk about the love of film. Welcome to Glazed Cinema. and opened up a door that upon entering, I never wanted to look back. It was unlike anything my eyes had ever seen. It was so dark, and the way the shadows were cast on the actors and set created such an eerie atmosphere. It just oozes awesomeness, at least to me. I started watching more and more films at the time, and soon I was introducing myself to directors like Bergman, Kurosawa, Tarkovsky, and Antonioni. However, despite Nosferatu being the catalyst for this, there is one film I keep coming back to, as I alluded to in the intro of this episode, and that is a film directed by the great Carl Theodore Dreyer called Vampire. I usually watch Vampire at least once a year, and I always look forward to it. It's one of those films that for me, will never get old, and it seems like I find something new with each viewing. Vampire went through some tribulations to even get made before it was eventually released in 1932. It was Dreyer's first sound film, and the follow-up to his 1929 classic, and one of the most beautiful and poignant films I've ever seen, The Passion of Joan of Arc. Vampire is a film that doesn't seem to get a lot of mention, which is unfortunate because it's one of my favorite horror films of all time. The film has an interesting backstory involving an Irish short story, a wealthy and aspiring actor, and a director's innovation among new challenges. Now among those challenges, Dreyer faced 
and potentially the largest, was how he was going to fund the film. You see, Dreyer's previous film about Joan, the saint and martyr, was a success. But the studio wasn't interested in shooting Vampire and dropped the project, especially since his vision was to make a film different from all the others. As a filmmaker, he was never comfortable with convention and took risks with almost every film he made. He once said, quote, Consciously, I don't do anything to please the public. I only think of working my way to a solution that satisfies my own artistic conscience. End quote. We can see with that one quote how he and a film studio differ. The studio, of course, wants to make money, and he wanted to make art. Dreyer, confident and determined, decided to pursue the film without the studio's help, and recruited the same crew from Joan. Challenges to fund the picture would soon end when he met a man, and I absolutely love his name, Baron Nicholas de Gunsberg. The Baron, a wealthy young Parisian man who was born into a wealthy family as his father had founded banks in both Russia and France. The Baron was known to close friends simply as Nicky, and was known for hosting extravagant parties and balls, with attendees being the likes of Coco Chanel and Cole Porter. He was also a man who desired to be an actor, and saw his introduction into the medium with Dreyer's new project. After speaking with Dreyer, the Baron agreed to finance his film, on one condition, that he would play the leading role of the film. Dreyer agreed, and Gunsberg would act in the film under the pseudonym of Julian West. Luckily, Dreyer did not have the challenge of finding a story, as he already knew what he wanted to direct. The film is based on an Irish novella called Carmilla by Sheridan Le Fanu. The story tells of a young woman named Laura and her father who form a relationship with a female vampire named Carmilla. The story tells of events surrounding the family which revolve around sickness, disappearances, and identity. It's quite influential, being the precursor to Bram Stoker's Dracula by a quarter century, and the story with the vampire follows a lot of the same plot lines. In fact, the Criterion Collection's release of the film includes a booklet with the novella inside, which is really nice. Apart from the plot, however, the story of how the film was to be made is also quite interesting. For the most part, and with a few exceptions, films of that time were made on sets and only shot in location if necessary. With the dryer going outside the studio, however, this was impossible to shoot on set since he didn't have the studio support he once had. So Dreyer began scouting locations on where his film would take place. He eventually landed on Courtempierre, France. Courtempierre offered a lot of what Dreyer was looking for, including seclusion. Today, it was home to roughly 236 residents, so one can only assume this was less than that in the early 30s. It also offered interesting architecture, including a chateau, which would become the centerpiece of the film. Along with location, another challenge Dreyer had was speech. After all, this was the 30s, and talkies were picking up steam. 
Dreyer and crew had to learn a lot while filming. For instance, how to record and utilize speech, but how they would do so without a controlled environment like a film studio as well. Amongst all those challenges, they also needed to decide on which language they would record in. Dreyer decided to do something quite unique amidst all these challenges and decided that the actors would say their lines three times in three different languages. French, German, and English. Now there isn't a lot of talking in the film, but still, that is quite the undertaking for a film at the dawn of speech in the industry. Even with the English option, I prefer watching it in German or French, most of the time in German. It just feels right somehow. Vampire begins quite wonderfully. It starts with a young man named Alan Gray arriving at a house just before dusk. The film doesn't have a lot of precursing and seems to jump right in. It is among these early scenes that we see perhaps one of the most recognizable and famous shots of the film. We see a dock on the water and a man with a hat holding a scythe over his shoulder ringing a bell on the water. He then boards a boat and Mr. Gray gets a room for the night and quickly goes to his room to get some shut-eye. Upon hearing some noises, however, he gets out into the hall and we see a man venture down the steps from upstairs. His face is a little morphed and he is muttering to himself as he descends the decline. This sight shocks Mr. Gray, and he turns back round into his room, and we see him lock the door behind him. In the middle of the night, we see the handle of the door begin to turn. The camera cuts to our hero's eyes as he looks on frozen in fear, staring wide-eyed toward the door. As it begins to open, an older man walks in. He's dressed rather nicely with a suit jacket and styled hair, but he looks anxious and tense, almost defensive. He paces back and forth as the two men look at each other. He mutters, quote, she mustn't die, understand? End quote. And we, like our hero, are caught unawares and confused about who this man is and what he is talking about. Before he leaves the room, he writes on a sealed parcel, quote, to be opened upon my death, end quote. We soon learn that his daughter has fallen ill and that he needs the man's help. The next day, our hero ventures to the stranger's house and soon begins his adventure to help a family escape the clutches of a cursed vampire. Vampire is an excellent film that unfortunately was not recognized in its time. I think part of that is because it was so ahead of its time. Between the camera tricks, experimental storytelling, and pacing, it stands out among the other films of that time. There are many shots and sequences that I love within this film. Some are short and simple while others are longer and intriguing. There's a scene in the beginning when our hero is walking to try and find the stranger who he met the night before that is quite simple, but so good. As he walks along the path that follows a creek, 
he sees a specter in the water. We see this in the form of shadows where there is no physical person on the trail on the other side of him. He follows the specter until it begins climbing a ladder upward along a building. We also see a shadow of a man shoveling in reverse, which is also really cool. Mr. Gray follows the specter up the ladder, where we eventually see a man with one leg and a cane sitting on a bench thinking. His elbow on his leg and head in his palm reminiscent of Rodin's thinker. The shadow we've been following sits in the same position as soon the man gets up and so does his shadow. While they walk away, we see more black shadows on the white walls. There are shadows of couples dancing, a clock ticking, and wheels spinning. At one point, the camera is high on a wall looking down on a doorway when an old woman walks in, raises her arms, and yells, Silence! Soon the old woman speaks to the one-legged man and asks, Where is he? To which the man points on, and we see our hero walk out as the old woman begins to follow behind him. Apart from this scene, I really like it when we see the girl victim start to show signs that she is falling under the vampire's spell. We join her in a bedroom, where a nun is tending to her by candlelight. The girl is muttering the blood and writhing in bed, a wet cloth on her forehead. The bit of this sequence I like, though, is when her sister comes into the room to visit. The ill girl is now sitting in a chair, clearly distraught, as she states that she is damned, her fingers brushing tears from her face. The fingers stop at her lips, and she begins to tinker with her teeth as her distraught slowly turns into something else. She turns to look up at her sister, and as her head cranks upwards, she develops a wicked, creepy, dog-toothed grin. Her sister walks backward, horrified at this, and she has these great eyes that are wide and really lend themselves to the scene. The camera follows her out, and her sister's smile slowly fades to frustration and anger when the nun moves her sister back out into the hallway, away from her. I love that entire sequence. It's so well executed. Of course, I cannot talk about Vampire without mentioning the burial sequence. At one point in the film, our hero, Mr. Gray, enters a dreamlike state. He's walking to follow the doctor, who was tending to the sick girl, and we see our hero sit down on a bench from exhaustion. As he sits, the camera does this great effect, where he splits into two, a spirit and a physical body. The spirit is translucent, and it gets up as the physical body is still sitting hunched over on the bench. As the spirit walks off, he comes to a house, and upon entering he sees a casket with a tarp over it. The lid of the coffin is propped up against a wall, and we see there is a window on the casket lid, and writing in German with a message that translates to, quote, For dust thou art, and to dust thou shalt return. End quote. As he peels back the tarp, we see that inside the casket is Mr. Gray himself. His eyes are open, 
and his body is stiff, looking skyward. Soon, the doctor walks in smoking a cigar, and the spirit of Mr. Gray goes to hide. The one-legged man, who we saw before, walks into the room, and soon he places the lid on top of the casket. The camera is now inside the coffin, looking through the window at the ceiling. As we see the man turning a swivel screwdriver, we also see the old woman glance down through the window at our hero. Soon, we're carried off by ghosts of criminals, and the camera gazes out of the window as we pass the doctor looking down at us. We see the trees above the moon that passes through the leaves and branches. We pass by some rising stone walls of the house itself, while the camera intermittently cuts to show our hero gazing upward at us. Soon, the group of criminals carrying the casket passes by Mr. Gray's body on the bench. As the casket and pallbearers fade away into the brush, Mr. Gray rises from the bench and begins to walk off toward the home of which we just departed from. This scene is phenomenal, and my words cannot do it justice. It must be viewed to be enjoyed and appreciated. As much as I love this film, at the time, it was a tremendous flop. Looking back, I truly believe that the film was misunderstood and not appreciated for what it really was, which is a work of art. Dreyer thought he truly had something with his new project, but much to his disappointment, people did not respond well to it. Some audiences laughed, others were furious that they had wasted money on tickets, but few were impressed. Today, we can look at this film with a new lens, but unfortunately at the time, negative reception resulted in Dreyer having a nervous breakdown. He stopped making films for quite some time. In fact, he didn't return to directing until 1943, when his film Day of Wrath debuted 12 years after Vampire's release. Despite all of this, however, the film has gone down in history and one that continues to amaze film fans all over the world to this day. I wonder what Carl would think, seeing how it is regarded and appreciated. I wonder what his reaction might be. As for the Baron, well, he never acted again. In fact, he rarely discussed his role in the film in public. I learned a lot about the Baron in a Vanity Fair article about his life. It turns out that he moved to America and entered the print industry. He became somewhat of a style icon, becoming an editor in magazines like Town & Country, Harper's Bazaar, and Vogue. Through his career, he also discovered actress Lauren Bacall and designer Calvin Klein. If you have the opportunity, it's worth a read. I found it quite neat to learn more about him. I remember being taken by this film the first time I watched it, and have watched it countless times ever since. I vividly recall the first time I discovered this film. I went into Barnes & Noble back in my hometown, and I locked eyes with the cover of Vampire, and it excited me. It was a black and white picture of a woman lying down on a couch, seemingly asleep with a large shadow of a scythe on a wall above her, and in black font read Vampire. 
I had no idea what it was, but being a sucker for good cover art, I had to have it. I bought it, went home, and watched it that same night. I love the camera movements and tricks of this film, but I also love the scarceness as well. The story is fairly simple in terms of plot, but it's the direction and camera work that in my opinion make it exquisite. Vampire is a film that is not afraid of what it is, pushing boundaries, taking risks, and just overall being an absolute boss. It's different, and it's okay with that. I like to think of the camera work as a guitarist who's just way above everyone else in the band. Solo here, solo there. Oh, you're going to play a steady beat? I've got a solo for that. Fit right in. It's awesome, and the work deserves to be recognized. However, the thing I love the most about watching this film isn't even within the film itself. If there's one thing I have to say about Vampire is that I cannot watch it in its original state ever again. Now you may think that sounds weird after all I've said about it, but you see there's one facet of this film I haven't discussed yet. Something that every film has, which sets the mood of the film. The score. The original music of Vampire, to be perfectly honest, is a bit awkward, but I don't suggest casting it aside without watching the film in its original state to form your own opinion. However, I cannot talk about this film without discussing an external force of nature that completely elevates the film through sound. Before I get into that, I must say that I love all kinds of art, and music is no exception. I'm quite fortunate in the fact that my dad introduced me to many forms of music growing up. I love the messages, sounds, and chills I get while listening to great music. Whether that work is done by Miles Davis, Marvin Gaye, Bob Dylan, The Who, Godspeed You Black Emperor, Joyner Lucas, or Hank Williams, my favorite music genre, however, is metal. Doom, Black, Death, Progressive, industrial, or sludge. I like my metal dark and murky with some hair on it. I can't explain it, it's just so good that way, and it can completely calms my soul. I could, and have in the past, fallen asleep to some dark and heavy music, but anyway, I'm rambling at this point. Why do I mention this? Well, about six years ago, a band I like named Year of No Light released an album that piqued my interest. It was called Vampire. I already liked the band for their other albums, but this had me really intrigued. All I knew about Vampire, spelled with a Y and an R, was Dreyer's film, so naturally I was curious. The cover features a clouded sky with light peeking through the clouds, which is a shot taken from the film itself. When I turned the LP over, though, I was greeted with a shot of a silhouette walking through the sunlit forest, and I knew it was connected. Knowing that I'd have to pause and play the film while I turned over the vinyl, I first went home and watched the film with the album on iTunes. After listening to the score with the film, I can't watch Vampire without it ever again. The music is perfect, and gels beautifully with the visuals and themes. The only learning curve was finding where in the film to start the album so it would match the movie. Once I found it, though, I was completely blown away. 
Year of No Lights album, played with the film, adds such a great layer that just feels like the missing piece. It truly sets the film off, and I rejoiced on my first playthrough as it matches the tone and the imagery so well. The music is completely instrumental, and at times can be dark and broody, while other times being bright and moving. If you've never watched Vampire, set to Year of No Lights album of the same name, I highly recommend trying it out. Lining the film and music up, as I said before, is a bit of a learning curve. Since Vampire has been released by multiple companies, I find that each release of the film may have different timestamps. So instead of judging by time, I like it to measure when to start the album by using the film itself. Try to press play on the album when the spider webs fade during the script intro after the opening credits. The key to knowing if you're synced up is when the door of the room opens in the beginning when the gentleman enters. That moment should be met with a deeply distorted and brooding guitar. If that happens, you're golden the rest of the way through. Each time I watch Vampire, I always play the album with it. I can't say enough good things about it. It's even good on its own, honestly, just as a piece of music. I ended up buying the album afterwards on vinyl just to have it in my collection and to casually listen to it. But with the film, brilliant. If you'd like to watch Vampire for yourself, you can find it on the Criterion channel. The Criterion channel is a streaming service of tremendous value from our friends at Criterion Collection. The Criterion channel has different pricing structures, including $10.99 per month or $99 per year, which is what I chose to do. If you like film, I highly recommend a free trial just to see how you like it. Apart from the Criterion channel, you can also watch Vampire on streaming services like Prime Video and YouTube at the price of $1.99 to rent. You can also find it on HBO Max if you subscribe to that service. If you'd like to find Year of No Lights album, you can also listen to the album in full on streaming services like Spotify, YouTube, or Apple Music. This episode was recorded by me, Brian Kinney, with music by Kevin McLeod. If you'd like to learn more about the podcast, please feel free to visit our website at glazedcinema.com. There you'll find some background on the show and also a place to submit ideas for future episodes. For film fans who are hearing impaired, the blog page on our website features each episode in written form as well. If you like this podcast, tell your friends or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Each week, there will be new content including hints about episodes before they air. As always, thanks for listening, and I hope to see you next time with another beverage and another fine film on Glazed Cinema.